Welcome to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful day here on the Northern Plains. A great lineup of guests today. Steve Link, the broker at Pfeiffer's, is with us today as the co-host and a frequent guest on this program. Morgan Ulmer, one of Pfeiffer's farmland managers, is with us today, a native of Tuttle or Steele, North Dakota, out in Kidder County, is with us. And then our special guest today, Frayne Olson, is the crop economist and uh, marketing specialist with North Dakota State University Extension. And he's also the director of the Quinton Burdick Center for Cooperatives. So we're glad that Dr. Olson is with us today. He conducts educational programs and research and evaluating crop marketing strategies. And we're going to talk about crop outlook. And we're going to get into some price analysis and the economics of crop contracting. We probably won't touch on that today. But as a director also for the Center of Cooperatives, he teaches a senior level course on cooperative business management as well and coordinates the center's research and research activity. So we're glad Dr. Frayne Olson could be with us today. But before we get into the discussions with Dr. Olson, uh, we want to talk about some recent news that just came out of the Federal Reserve Districts in Minneapolis, Kansas City, and Chicago. And really, uh, I think quite a surprise for a lot of people who are not directly involved in agriculture or in the purchasing of land as an asset. But uh, the Federal Reserve in Kansas City, uh, like I said, in Chicago and Minneapolis came out and indicated that these are soaring land value environments that we are in right now, almost skyrocketing when you look at it, Steve Link. Uh, Because when you look at now the second quarter, which we recently concluded here June 30th, they're saying quarter this quarter versus a quarter a year ago, land values are up 10.7%. And in some of the districts, and I think it was Chicago was saying in that area where the I states are, Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana, they're up about 14%. So this increase is the largest quarter-to-quarter increase now, Steve, since 2013. Isn't that impressive? And do you remember 2012 and 13? I do. They were crazy times. We were well into the 20s for a while. Exactly, exactly. And they're using some of the same terms that they used back then. And so this is exciting times for for the land market and uh, and, and producers and how they're going to handle these soaring land prices and maybe increased costs that they have uh, ahead of them. But yeah, they're, they're hitting it right on the head. This is what we're seeing in our land sales. We're seeing more activity, more interest and more people they're bidding. And so this is, uh, these, these numbers are supporting that. You know, it's interesting is a lot of people, you know, almost daily, well, more than daily, a couple times a day, we get people asking what are land values doing? And I've been using pretty much the range. They've increased anywhere from five to, the 12% over the course of the last six months. Well, it looks like according to the surveying of the banks that are within these Federal Reserve districts, that we're probably closer to 10 to 14% now is the range. And Steve, where you have pent up demand, it could be even more than that. I agree. I agree. All real estate is local and pent up demand is a huge, huge factor. Interest rates are really region and wide. There's not a lot of variation. You can find banks that are maybe a little bit better than other banks, but that's really universal. Farm income, because of the safety net, is maybe uh, a little more universal, but there are areas that have had better crops. I think those areas are going to be a, have a higher higher uh, land prices and a higher percent increase um, versus some that are really drought-stricken and, and you maybe don't have some of the local producers participating in the uh, in the land market. But 
you know, overall, I the this 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 report nails it on the head. It really does. And you go back to thirteen. Now we had some uh, numbers that it increased. Farmland values increased quarter to quarter. Now meaning a quarter that whatever quarter it ended from the previous year of that quarter around 18, 19%, but they can go back to 12, 2012. We were well into the 20s, mid-20s, 2011 into the low 20s. So, again, we haven't seen this sharp of an increase, as some people are saying now, skyrocketing land values since 2013. So it's been eight years. A lot of people do ask us, too, well, how is the drought affecting the uh, current land value market and the cash rent value, Morgan, which you're involved in too, yes. you see, you might be seeing some fluctuations there too in the cash rent values. Yes, very much so. And and in terms of of production this year, it's it's very uh, spotty. Um, some some crops got timely rains. Um, you know, small bands that went through and crops look good. Um, in other areas, uh, it's a tough year. Kind of the year, year of the haves and have-nots, really, when you think about it. Very much so. You know, drought monitoring index showing almost all of North Dakota in a severe drought. Now, uh, my response to a lot of people when they ask, you know, what, it, what about the drought and land values? Well, I always, I always remind them that land values are driven by fundamentals, not by one- or two-year events. So, you know, whether it's what's going on in the, over the overseas or in Afghanistan or whether it's the drought or whatever it might be, land values are driven by the product, productivity of the land, by commodity prices, and that's where Dr. Frayne Olson is going to come on here in a minute, interest rates, and then a, a favorable risk management program, which is federal crop insurance. So, again, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, – a lot of pressure in this part of the world right now as far as uh, the row crops. The row crops are very in a very uh, vulnerable stage right now, Steve. They need a lot of rain. They need timely rains. Uh, it, you know, they were cutting, farmers were cutting corn for silage in central North Dakota in July, which is unheard of. Some of our friends out in western North Dakota that work for pifers are stating that there basically isn't going to be much of a corn crop, if any at all, in southwestern North Dakota, there might not even be enough to chop in some cases. Well, yeah, and when 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 I was in Bismarck last week, there's a area in there that the crop land is very good quality crop land, and yes, that was an area that they were chopping that corn for silage. You know, it's disheartening. And a little bit further east, it's not quite as good quality, but they caught some of the rain, and so they're holding on, and they're going to try and harvest, bring that corn all the way to harvest. And it, not only was it the rain, it was a timely rain in some places too. So again, the year of the haves and have-nots. Well, Dr. Frayne Olson is with us, crop economist and marketing specialist with North Dakota State University. Dr. Olson, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you being on. I know you and I have been on a number of programs over the last couple of decades. We've done that together. And, uh, you know, I can remember, geez, it wasn't all that many years ago, you and I were on a program together. And that is when we hit one of the all-time years in carryovers for corn soybeans and wheat and the reason was that previous year there wasn't one county in all of the corn belt states of the northern plains that had a drought and i don't remember the exact year of that frame but that was quite some time ago but we certainly can't say that now and what kind of an impact is this drought do you think going to have on commodity prices in this part of the region well, you know, for it varies quite a bit by commodity. So, you know, let's kind of start with with the the big biggest one, corn. The challenge we're having in corn market right now, and we're going to be debating corn yields and soybean yields all the way up until the combines run 
But the the moral of the story is we really, as you said earlier, kind of a tale of two cities here. We've got the western Corn Belt, in particular the northern Plains states. You got North Dakota, Minnesota, a big chunk of Iowa, South Dakota, even parts of Nebraska that are exceptionally dry. We're we're seeing the impacts of the drought. Yields are definitely going to be reduced. The question is how much. However, you get into the eastern Corn Belt. And you get into the Illinois, the Indiana, the Ohio, Kentucky, Missouri, you get kind of on the other side of that frontal boundary that we've been set up for, and they're actually having a fantastic year. And so the debate going on right now nationally, kind of in the futures market and on a national basis, is will the increased production in the eastern Corn Belt, how much of that will offset the losses we're seeing in the western Corn Belt? Now, we did get some information out recently from USDA. At least it's a, an initial forecast on their port. We, everybody knows there's still a lot of kind of wiggle room in what that final numbers will be. Um, <clears throat> but that's, that's the debate going on is, is, yes, the Western Corn Belt, we're definitely under a drought. We're having lower yields. But we can't forget that the Eastern Corn Belt is having a really, really good year. Yeah, that's interesting that you would uh, categorize it that like that. And, you know, and I think within our footprint, within Piper's footprint, uh, I would say that is very consistent what you just described, because obviously we do a lot of business in, uh, in into Minnesota, Iowa, and a lot into Wisconsin, and a little bit into Illinois. So again, over in those areas, Steve, we're seeing some really robust uh, corn crops right now. If they get them off without any challenges, there's going to be a pretty good crop. Exactly. And Frayne, that, that you brought up a uh, an interesting question that I have. Does the market now care about North Dakota and Western Minnesota and South Dakota? Is that new? Because in the past, they haven't really cared about those states for corn. For corn, uh, for corn, you know, probably not. Just because we don't quite have that acreage base and the, and the really high yielding varieties that you do like in a uh, southern Minnesota, uh, uh, an Iowa or an in Illinois. I mean, their average yields in those states, you know, it, 200 plus, almost 300 in some areas as an average. You know, we just don't have, we've got yield potential to do that in a single year, but not year after year after year. And so when we look at the, the bushel count, the, the bushel count, not necessarily acres, but bushels, I mean, North Dakota is important, but we, in the corn world, we're really not that critical. You move into soybeans a little bit different because we have a, a much la- a larger area of that. We've got a- higher average yields relative to the corn belt. So the soybean story is a little bit different. But for corn, um, you know, this, this on the national level, no, we're, we're kind of a mid-table to minor player. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Frayne Olson from North Dakota State University, uh, our special guest today talking about corn, soybeans, wheat, and other commodity prices. Uh, Dr. Olson has his PhD from the University of Missouri in Agricultural Economics and his MS and BS in Agriculture Economics from North Dakota State University. Glad he could join us today, folks. You're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, Steve Link, Pfeiffer's Brokers with us, and Morgan Ulmer, one of Pfeiffer's Farmland Managers with us today. If you want to email them, you can at info at pifers.com or you can call any of their farmland marketing specialists or their farmland managers, their farmland auctioneers, equipment auctioneers, or their farmland real estate agents at 877-700-4099 or you can visit their website at pifers.com. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. We'll be right back after this break. $1,000 bid, $2,000 where, $1,750 here now too. Sold your way for $1,750. 
Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. Glad you could join us on this beautiful day, folks. Tell you what a great year it's been here and a challenging year in this part of the country. But again, great guests today, co-hosting Steve Link as Pfeiffer's broker of real estate services and Morgan Almer, one of Pfeiffer's farmland managers. And of course, our special guest, Dr. Frank Olson, crop economist and marketing specialist with North Dakota State University Extension, and also the director of the Quentin Burdick Center for Cooperatives. Glad he could join us today. You know, we've been talking a lot about corn. We're going to talk more about corn here in a little bit. We could probably talk about this for hours and hours. And one thing we're not going to touch a lot on today are, you know, some of the the, the drought conditions and how they're affecting agriculture. But Dr. Petrie uh, recently had a column, too, in the North Dakota Stockman's Association uh, magazine. And I think uh, all of you probably heard our show when the president of the Stockman's was on with us. But you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he said that price support there is coming from the smaller than expected supply right now and the strong demand. But it seems like you go in a grocery store right now that uh, the beef prices are up. Uh, one thing that is interesting that he noted, the U.S. beef cow herd uh, declined in 19 and, and 2020. Uh, the drought forced liquidation with higher beef cow slaughter, he said, will result in the beef cow herd declining again in 2020 and 21. So obviously we kind of know what's going to happen there. Uh, the forecasting beef production in 2020, uh, 21 is going to peak out at about 27.9 billion pounds. So interesting dynamics taking place right there in the, in, in the cattle and livestock industry. And I know they're all paying attention to corn prices frame because, uh, right now what we're seeing is, uh, like you said, we're seeing on the northern plains what you call the western corn belt. We're seeing this uh, this pressure, this down pressure on yields versus what's happening in the eastern corn belt in the I states and Wisconsin and, and some of those where we may have some pretty strong yields. But I know in our part of the world, uh, the cattlemen are certainly probably itching and get a little bit nervous about some of the corn prices, don't you think, Dr. Olson? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the livestock sector in general, whether you're talking whether species, if you're talking beef or pork or poultry or, or dairy, um, you know, higher uh, feed costs are a major, major portion of your production costs. Um, it has an impact on on obviously profitability at the at the farm ranch level, but also obviously with with prices, in particular in the beef sector, because you look at feeder cattle, which is kind of that bridge between the cow calf producer and onto the, the feedlots and the slaughter process, it's that intermediary growth stage that's heavily, heavily impacted. The prices of feeder cattle are heavily impacted by the price of corn, and obviously a lot of the cow-calf producers in this region sell into that marketplace. So, um, you know, there's there's the actual production issues and making sure you get your animals fed, that they're, that they're, they're healthy and you're going to make it through the winter. But then there's this whole pricing piece about, well, how are the markets trying to adapt and adjust to this new this new kind of world we're in with this with the drought conditions? You know, if you don't mind, if you could framework and let's just stay on corn, because I think corn is such a such a dynamic topic right now. And I know years ago during the great super cycle, you know, the three most important things at that time were corn, corn, corn and China, 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 of course, and all that. A lot of people, hey, how much how much U.S. corn is China going to buy and all this? But if you could framework for us now, just provide this framework as far as where we are in the U.S. now as far as carryover stocks from last year into this year and what some of, and I know we can't nail down the exact projections for this year now, but where are we exactly? 
And how many, because don't we consume around 12 to 13 billion bushels of corn a year? So where are we, Dr. Olson, in this in this whole framework of corn? Sure. Okay. So so let's let's just talk about the the big three uses right now, just to get kind of put it in perspective. Because the the question everybody asks is, as prices go higher, the idea is, well, as prices go higher, you start rationing use. We just don't have it available, so we got to raise prices so somebody consumes less. And the question we're asking is, well, who's going to back away first? Right? Who's who's the most price sensitive buyers? Okay, so just to overall big picture, about, you know, 40, 45 percent of our corn goes into the livestock sector as a, as a feed source. We got about 40 to 45 percent of our corn goes into the ethanol industry. OK, and of course, profitability for ethanol crush is heavily influenced by um, by energy prices and kind of how many miles we drive. And then there's about 15%, 10 to 15%, depending upon the year, that goes into the export market. And that's really where China comes in, right? So on the margin, if we have a really, really big crop, where does our extra corn grow? Um, go as far as a market outlet, it's typically exports. If we have a really tight supply situation, who's typically the most price sensitive? In most cases, it's the export market. And so then it comes, you know, comes down to a battle for, for bushels between the livestock sector and the, and the ethanol sector. And that's kind of what we saw back in 2012, 2013. Well, you bring up China, and now the dynamics have changed a little bit. The open-ended question right now, and the reason we're kind of hedging a bit on what prices might do, is we're really not sure what the, the game plan is for the Chinese buyers. We know that their, their hog industry is, is kind of recovered from African swine fever, um, they're looking at some alternative feed sources besides just corn and soybean meal. But yet there's this underlying really strong demand base for, for corn and feed grains in, specifically in the Chinese market. And so we're, we're, we're all kind of waiting on bated breath to say, well, given these higher prices, are, is China still going to come in and try and soak up those additional bushels? So we got a three-way race instead of a two-way race. And that's, that's really right now, again, where the market's trying to figure out, okay, how many bushels do we have to deal with? And more importantly then, where's that demand base and how price sensitive are these buyers? You know, that's interesting that um, the uses, I don't know, Steve, if a lot of people realize that, you know, when you take a look at it, 40% plus really of our corn production goes to ethanol. That's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? Well, you know, and I, and I live by an ethanol plant and so I, I watch that the activity over there day in and day out. And, you know, Frayne really touched on that. They, they don't just shut down because the prices are too high. They keep rolling, they keep moving, they keep using that corn. And so, you know, you just can't shut that down. Same with the livestock. You just can't just all of a sudden, okay, I'm not going to feed my cattle this week. And so, um, you know, I, I think he nailed it on the head that, that the buyers, the, the export are the ones that can shut it down today and, and, and a lot quicker and, and, and affect those prices. Yeah. And the fact that price sensitivity, like Dr. Olson says, is going to come over probably from the export market more, more from more than any place else. Dr. Olson, where are we at coming into this year now? Where were we at in, on corn, just corn carry over stocks coming into 2021? Yeah, so so the, the the record low we had was actually actually in 2012 2013 that time frame, and that was about six and a half percent carryover stocks. Meaning that if you take our ending stocks divided by our total use, kind of what's that margin for error? And and we were paper thin at those levels. 
Now today, in in old crops, so the crop that's already that's still in the bin, not the one that's in the field, you know, we're at about seven and a half percent carryover stocks. The current USD number is for a little bit higher than that, and and again, it depends upon how you do the math on it. But it's it's about eight or eight and a half percent. The what I say is when the carryover stocks gets less than ten percent. The market gets really nervous. If we have more than 10% carryover stocks, the corn market's pretty comfortable saying, yeah, you know, we've got a margin for error in case there's a hiccup. We've got enough bushels floating throughout the system. Below that, then the market gets really nervous, and that's where we're at right now. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Frayne Olson from North Dakota State University, crop economist and marketing specialist. Boy, we've barely touched on any any of the other crops, and we're going to get into soybeans and wheat, but... After this break, we're going to get back into corn just a little bit because I know Steve and Morgan got a couple of questions, too. Dr. Olson is also the director of the Center for Cooperatives at North Dakota State University, so he's glad he could join us today. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer in studio today. Morgan Almer, one of Pfeiffer's farmland managers who covers pretty much all of North Dakota and Minnesota. And Steve Link, the brokers for Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty in Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. You talk about a a very productive group of uh, farmland real estate agents. They get it done over there. Folks, if you want to email them, you can at info at Pfeiffer's.com or contact their farmland managers, their farmland auctioneers or equipment auctioneers, or their farmland real estate agents. You can. You can go to their website at Pfeiffer's.com or call them toll-free, 877 700 4099. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. We'll be right back after this break. In it here now, I'm gonna do it now. I'm gonna be on here now. Who bid five hundred thousand dollar bid? I'm in five hundred in. Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. I'm glad all of you could join us again today. Dr. Frayne Olson, crop economist and marketing specialist with North Dakota State University Extension and the director of the Quinton Burdick Center for Cooperatives is our special guest today. Steve Link, co-hosting today, the broker at Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. And Morgan Almer, the one of the farmland managers at Pfeiffer's with us today. Right before we got into the break, we talked about the carryover of the corn stocks and where we are today. And uh, Steve, it's kind of interesting. Dr. Olson said we're kind of in that uh, things aren't paper thin, obviously, but we're, you know, the all-time or the recent all-time low for uh, the record low on, on corn carryover is around 6.5% back in 12, and now we're at maybe 7.5%. And any time he said you get below 10%, pretty much volatility's creeping in, right? Yep. And, Fran, I got a question for you. So the when the, the yield projections that USDA is doing and all the crop tours are going on right now, does that ever get settled, the exact yield that happens year to year? And when, it, and when does that happen? Okay, so it does. We, we kind of come final zero one and a final number, and that usually is reported in the January after harvest. So, so what happens is USDA does a massive survey of farmers after harvest. They say, what yields did you actually get? And then they cross-validate that. They cross-check those numbers in the survey with information coming from um, FSA, Farm Service Agency, through the reporting systems into the farm program, as well as through RMA, which is the crop insurance side. Now, it's not that they take one farmer and say, oh, Joe reported this on, on one survey and this on a different survey. 
they're looking at, at, at statewide averages, they're looking at, at regional averages. And so USDA then uses that to, to balance things out and say, okay, here's the final number by state, as well as by, um, uh, by county, by state, and also nationally. So we really don't get those final official numbers until January. Do you think that that'll ever change? Do you think they'll start using uh, yield monitors or, or elevators or anything like that to get 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 truer earlier numbers? Um, you know, they they use a lot of different information sources, and and that's being obviously hotly debated on where do you get that information? Okay, now one of the challenges we have up here in North Dakota, you know, almost everybody is enrolled in the farm program, almost everybody is enrolled in crop insurance. And so, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of cross-validate and you say, well, why don't we just use the RMA numbers instead? Well, when you look nationally, that isn't the case. You get into the south, in particular the southeast, they're really not big heavy users of crop insurance. There's, there's other parts of the country that are not heavy users of the federal farm programs, so they don't enroll in the farm program. So we we would be missing some data. We may increase the accuracy here in North Dakota, Minnesota, but we're going to lose some some really important producing states and regions across the nation. So I, I really don't see any major shifts or changes short term, but I know that's something that they're always looking at saying, how can we improve the accuracy? Folks, you're listening to Dr. Frane Olson, crop economist and marketing specialist with North Dakota State University. We've been talking quite a bit, Steve, about corn. We're going to shift our focus a little bit now because, you know, North Dakota, you know, we never were considered a corn state, but we're part of what Dr. Frayne Olson would say now, that Western Corn Belt, uh, North Dakota. And interestingly, I read recently where the average yield of uh, corn goes up about 1.6 bushel per acre a year in North Dakota, which is kind of surprising. We're still down around 140 142 bushels per year. Uh, we're not like the I states uh, where they're 182 to 200 average or whatever it might be, but we're becoming a big corn state. But also soybeans, wheat, a lot of canola now being planted here. We got a lot of potatoes, sugar beets and stuff. But let's shift our focus a little bit to soybeans. And uh, Morgan, the soybean crop right now, uh, it's it's about over now for the year for the corn. We're, in, we're basically in early September here. And, you know, basically it's been a tough year on row crops because we had such a dry July and August for the most part. Yes, yes, it's been a tough year for for most all the row crops. Um, you know, a timely rain could still be beneficial, of course, but uh, but uh, they're they're starting to mature. Um, harvest is going to be probably in two to three weeks from now in terms of soybeans. So, Doctor Olson, if you could, uh, like you did in the corn, just kind of give us a framework of you know carryover and soybeans, you know, from from last year and and kind of the projections for where we are for this year in the soybean crop. Yeah, so, so first on nationally, kind of big picture, very similar story, eastern corn belt, western corn belt. And I just to clarify, we kind of use the imaginary line of the Mississippi River to divide that. So if you're east of the Mississippi versus west of the Mississippi. Now, um, same kind of basic story nationally. When you get into locally or regionally, you know, North Dakota is a much bigger soybean state. And so I, I get a lot more questions from national people and saying what's happening to soybeans in North Dakota, because they understand what happens here does have an impact on the soybean market. And and as you noted earlier, you know, soybean yields are, are going to be, they've already been hurt. If we get some rains, it's basically going to probably put a, a stop to the decline. Um, we're, we're getting into the harvest a lot quicker than we normally do. 
Now, one of the things on soybeans, we got a different dynamic on the usage side. So approximately half of our soybeans are used domestically. We go into a crushing plant and about half of them are exported. And of the exports, obviously China is the 800 pound gorilla. They are the ones that really dominate the global soybean market. And we in this region, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, our major supply chain from the U.S. soybean industry into that Chinese market because logistically it's very easy to get beans from this region um, directly into that market. So the, the market is, is adjusting and looking at the soybean conditions very different. When we look at carryover stocks, our record low again was back in that 2012-13 time period. We're at almost, almost exactly same carryover stocks today as we were back then. And so not only for old crop, the soybeans that were still few soybeans left in the bin, but also new crop, the ones we're going to harvest in a little bit, if that demand base stays as strong as we expect it to, we're going to be on very, very tight supplies this time next year. So that is, uh, you know, again, just using layman's language, that could potentially equate to a more bullish market in the commodity prices, right? Yeah, so the way I try to like, like to explain it is, look, the, there's very, very limited downside risk. There are some things that happen to, to let prices fall lower, but, you know, we really take have something unusual. So I, I would say the odds of prices falling dramatically from here are pretty low. Uh, the odds of going up are, are, are better, but, again, it depends upon the demand base. How, who's going to pay for these really high-priced soybeans? Interesting. One again, of the things we, yep, go ahead. No, one of the things we see is when when those carryover stocks are really small, two things happen. We get, on average, higher prices, but we also see, as you mentioned, volatile prices because any new piece of information or change in what we think is going to happen can have that big influence on what we think will happen in the future and, and, and of course, pricing. You know, it's interesting. We talked earlier about, you know, Dr. Olson categorized it kind of the tale of two cities and i said the the haves and the have nots and you know if you have a good risk management program in place with federal crop i mean it obviously eases the pain or mitigates the damages a little bit and uh provides at least some uh some some gain there for at least you to at least to cover your input costs and all of that steve but you know when you think about it where we are today uh again uh for those uh producers who can hang on you know, look like there might be some light at the end of the tunnel. We could see some, uh, potentially, we could uh, see some pretty strong prices going into 2022. Yeah, and, and you know, I talked to a producer today that, that, you know, he was excited about his crop. He caught some of those timely rains. It wasn't a lot of rain, but it was at the exact right time. And he's in an area that all of his neighboring counties are dry, but he's caught some rain. So he's actually trying to figure out what he's going to do for storage and when he's going to haul in his crop and, and make those plans for this year where other producers are it's it, they just know they're not going to have the yield there and so it's, it's going to be pretty easy to store that but uh, dr olson i so you talked a little bit about half of the soybean crop is used domestically does does uh, a, a soybean crush plant like they're proposing at spiritwood north dakota does that move the radar at all or uh, how does that work domestically yeah, so we, there's kind of two big pieces to price, local prices. Number one is, of course, what's happening in the futures market, and that's really the level I've been kind of talking about is that big national level. And then the second piece is what's going on locally, because we have these local markets that we really have to deal with, and, and the differential there is the basis. So 
We haven't talked a lot about the basis levels, but typically what happens when you have a crush plant or an ethanol com- plant come into your local area, what it's the, the first source of those bushels, of course, for demand is going to be local bushels. So what we typically see is that there's an improvement in the basis. So in this region, we normally have a negative basis. So you take the futures price minus the basis to get local cash. Well, that negative number becomes less negative. And, and we likely will see that, especially when the plant first opens, but over even a longer time period. On average, basis levels to tend to be much stronger right next to the plant because they're trying to draw the cheapest bushels they can which are the ones that are, are located right next in their backyard. Folks are listening to America's land auctioneer. Dr. Frank Olson is with us today from North Dakota State University. Uh, we've talked a lot about corn and soybeans. And after our, this break here and we get into our final segment, we want to talk a little bit about wheat and canola, but certainly some interesting dynamics taking place. And when you figure all the different equations that it takes to make it in farming today, whether you're in, livestock or crop it's 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 a rather dynamic and interesting time without a doubt folks you're listening to america's land auctioneer steve link is with us today the broker for pifer's auction realty and pifer's land management morgan almer one of pifer's farmland managers if you want to get a hold of any of the pifer's staff you can get a hold of their farmland managers farmland real estate agents or their farmland auctioneers and equipment auctioneers you can email them at info at pifers.com or you can go to their website at pifers.com and click on the contact page and look at their team members. Or you can, of course, call them toll-free at 877-700-4099. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. We'll be right back after this break. Been the money getting in on 35, and I have sold it to you right there. Good bird, just great. Bye. Been on here now, fifty thousand dollar bid now, twenty five bid thirty. I'm in twenty five bid on thirty and one thirty thousand dollars here now. They're gonna now thirty thousand dollar bid and now five. Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. Glad you could all join us today. Man, what a program today. One of the best we've ever had here. Dr. Frayne Olson from North Dakota State University is with us, crop economist and marketing specialist. Steve Link with Pfeiffer's Auction Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management is with us. And then also Morgan Almer with Pfeiffer's Farmland Management team is with us today. We were talking about soybeans uh, leading into the break, Steve. And, you know, it's interesting. And Morgan, you've noticed this too, is over the course of the last number of years, man, the, the, the proliferation of the growth of canola in North Dakota, a lot of canola being raised up here. Right, way more canola than there used to be, that's for sure. Yeah, Dr. Olson, I'm sure you're seeing that too, and uh, uh, how much more canola we have in North Dakota now versus even just five, ten years ago. Yeah, it, it's been a it's been a really steady, methodical growth, and, and it, it, you know, it's getting to be a larger and larger portion of the uh, landscape within the state. You know, as far as as far as the uh, uh, the yield in North Dakota, how are, are the yields? Are you noticing are they improving in North Dakota? And and as far as any, do we have statistics on carryover stocks and that type of thing on canola? Yeah, so the the canola gets to be a little trickier. Again, I haven't heard any um, real good harvest reports yet. Um, USDA doesn't do as extensive a job in trying to cover some of the smaller market crops like. Like canola, it's important to this region, but again, nationally, it's it's a bit smaller. So um, I, I rely a little bit more on some of the industry contacts, and I, I really haven't heard a lot of really good yield reports on canola yet. Um, I think it's a you know, we'll be we'll be getting to that harvest, the peak of that harvest season here pretty soon. But the moral of the story is 
Uh, what's happening in the canola market really parallels a lot what's happening in the soybean market because they're both oil seeds. They do compete with each other. The difference, of course, is, yes, North Dakota is big in canola, but the Canadians are even much bigger. And so when we when we look at the total available supplies, when we look at growing demand base, we've had several major announcements by big companies that are going to add canola crushing capacity just across the line on the Canadian border. Um, it Globally, the demand base for canola, both canola oil and meal, is very strong. We need to have this continued growth in acreage. But right now, given, again, some yield reductions because of drought in this region as well as into the Canadian provinces, the prairie provinces, man, we're going to be exceptionally tight on canola. And the canola stocks are going to be not on old crop, but, again, coming into harvest now, the new crop. Uh, the, the canola market's really having a hard time trying to ration the use. And so, again, a lot of market volatility. I think there's going to be really good opportunities for farmers to try and not only expand into canola, but also grow canola and, and have that as a very profitable alternative. Interesting. As uh, farmers now began to look at 2022, Steve, probably crop rotation, maybe including a little bit canola next year, too, in some of these areas. Yeah, you know, and, and farmers are really intuitive on, on what they can grow on their soils. And, and if corn didn't make it last year, maybe canola is a better better crop and, and, and they can ensure themselves a better yield on that. And if there's a market out there, why not? You know, if it's not a lot of difference in their in their equipment, they why not grow canola? Why not grow sunflowers? Why not grow some of those oil oil seeds that, uh, that they can make good money on? Well, let's get into the final commodity that we wanted to talk about today. You know, I don't know if the saying's true, wheat is still king in North Dakota, but we raise more of it than any state in the country. Uh, the wheat reports, uh, Morgan, I know in your footprint at Pfeiffer's are the farmland that you manage, uh, certainly a lot of varying reports anywhere from what I've heard, five bushel an acre to 75 bushel an acre, depending on where you are. Again, the haves and the have-nots. Right, right. There, we've, we've seen it all uh, from farmers and ranchers haying their wheat, their wheat crop to, uh, like you said, 60, 75 bushel wheat. So uh, really it's a varying depending upon where you are in the state. Yeah, you know, uh, I would imagine, Dr. Olson, and we're looking at uh, at, at wheat now, unlike corn, uh, where we don't probably in North Dakota influence the market as much, uh, obviously there are probably a lot of eyes on North Dakota right now. Yeah, especially for spring wheat. Um, you know, obviously we're we're the big spring wheat state. Uh, when we look at winter wheat, you, you tend to think of Kansas. Um, the, the wheat market gets a little more complicated because you have all these different subclasses. So, let me talk just really quickly. I get a lot of questions about why aren't wheat prices higher? And, you know, and they're, they're at some pretty high levels right now relative to recent history. But think about the size of the spring wheat market only. And what it's trying to do is lift the lifting power of the spring wheat all by itself is, is, is limited. So it can't pull up all of the wheat classes simultaneously. Otherwise, we're going to start seeing some shifting of usage, right? And, and really what right now it's limiting spring wheat is – the global wheat supplies. It's, it's the supply of winter wheat we have in the U.S., but more importantly, global wheat supplies. And we're starting to get information now from other major producers and exporters, like the Black Sea region, like um, Europe, that they're having some production issues as well. So even globally, the wheat supply is, is, uh, is starting to tighten up quite a bit. So I do think wheat market is one of those you need to be continue to be watching a lot of this is going to be driven by international trade and what's happening globally because we got a pretty good read on what the size of the U.S. spring wheat crop is. We're getting a better read on what the Canadian spring wheat crop is. So um, right now as we move forward, it's going to be much more about what's happening internationally and how quickly can we move through the supply chain. 
You know, as far as those uh, quotients or those percentages of carryover and where we are, are you feeling we're well under 10% in the wheat market too? Well, so the wheat market's a little different. We tend to have a little bit more carryover because wheat is a food grain. We tend to have a little bit more carryover. So a typical range of carryover is from 30 to 35%. That's kind of the norm, the typical. And we're at about 25% now on spring wheat, and we might be going a little lower than that depending upon what's happening in the export market. So we're in that range, just kind of like corn. We're in that range where the market is really, really nervous about where we're at and being able to get to, to, to keep the supply chain full and being able to have access to the grain they need. And again, wheat is an exceptionally quality-sensitive crop. Um, unlike corn, where the quality parameters are fairly broad, when we get to wheat, um, you know, they, it's all about not only quantity, but also the quality part of it. And fortunately, the quality coming in with this year's harvest has been pretty good. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Frayne Olson. He's a crop economist and marketing specialist at North Dakota State University and also the director of the Quentin Burdick Center for Cooperatives. Uh, has his Ph.D. from the University of Missouri in agricultural economics and his M.S. and B.S. in Agriculture Economics from North Dakota State University. I know a lot of farmers and ranchers over the years have listened to Frayne Olson, and I know I've been on a couple of programs with him over the last couple of decades. Brings a lot of insight and a lot of knowledge to what we're doing. But, you know, Steve, let's just circle back from the beginning of the program today. Uh, we talked about uh, land values and what they're influenced by, the, not necessarily one or two event year events like the drought or any geopolitical things taking place, but really fundamentals and one of those key fundamentals is commodity prices. And kind of what I'm hearing today is uh, maybe, uh, you know, temper, temper my enthusiasm a little bit, but I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm leaning bullish rather than bearish, but leaning bullish about commodity prices on our bigger three or four crops in North Dakota, you know, as we're beginning the process of exiting the 2021 crop year and getting and thinking about next year already. Yeah, we got to try and anticipate, is there going to be a drawback right after this run up or are we going to level out? And, you know, some of the things that, that Dr. Olson's talking about, I, I, I really feel like we're going to see a, a, at the very minimum a leveling off. I don't think we're going to see a huge drawback in the near term. We never know in the long term, but uh, it, it's, I'm feeling really good about the market. Yeah. Dr. Olson, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. All right. It was my pleasure. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Morgan Almer, uh, quite a year we're having, and I'm sure you guys got your year-end reports coming up here, too. Yes, they are. We're, we're about ready to head out for our fall field checks for soybeans and corn. Now, the farmland managers at Pfeiffer's are busy. Steve Link, uh, the broker at Pfeiffer's, their farmland real estate agents and farmland auctioneers, equipment auctioneers are all very productive this time of year. I see on their calendar they got about 50-plus farmland auctions and equipment auctions coming up, so they're covering a lot of territory and a big footprint. Uh, folks, there's a lot of things to be optimistic about it. One of them is we live in the greatest country in the world, so we can always be thankful for that. We've got one of the greatest health care systems in the world, got access to great health care, and, and obviously most all of Americans have access to food, which is a great thing. So let's don't forget that. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. If you want to get a hold of any of my guests today, email us at info at pfeiffers.com, or if you want to go to pfeiffers.com website you can certainly do that and look at their team of farmland managers farmland real estate agents their land auctioneers and equipment auctioneers you can or you can certainly call steve or morgan or any of their colleagues at 877-700-4099 on behalf of my guests and co-hosts today folks thank you for being with us you've been listening to america's land auctioneer now one 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 one